Chapter Five of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Five. Sister Samuel was fascinated with Crispin Archer's playing. With her pretty, dreamy little face screened from him by her coif, she sat in his studio in the main building, listening to his majestic rendition of the Finlandia. Through the great translation of the hopes of a people for freedom, the music had been demanding, rolling in thunderous swells that shook the piano, and Sister Samuel equally. But now the warriors were defeated, bringing home the dead, and he played softly, as if death were the inexplicable, and even he dared not mock it. These were the only measures he treated with respect. Never had Sister Samuel heard a musician play like that, snapping his fingers in the face of the composer turning a pianissimo into a giant fortissimo, and crashing chords into whispers. To one who always played carefully, reading the expression as minutely as the notes, it was an unforgettable experience. She was breathless when he finished, and his hands fell to the bench beside him. She didn't know at what point in the music she had risen to her feet. Yet there she stood, her back to the light, her face shadowed, dreading the moment when he would look over and expect her to say something. But Crispin Archer was in a mood to play, not to talk, and Sister Samuel was the perfect listener. Without even wiping his forehead, which she saw was a glitter, he began a seldom-heard theme from Chopin. Sister Samuel would have played it with a light, gentle touch, but this interpretation was without reverence, as if the player enjoyed the spectacle of sadness, which had led another to write such music. Oh, don't, don't, Sister Samuel wanted to cry out, but she didn't. With her lovely blue eyes on Crispin's stocky hands, she listened and said not a word. Through a haze of music, the great Tobolson tramped down the stairs from his studio, a beret cockily over one ear, and the sketch pad in his hand. He was a little late for his outdoor class, but Tor never had spoiled his students by being present to start them on a day's work. When he saw Mother Theodore in the hall, he paused, a smile wrinkling around his eyes. He had been at St. Aurelian's long enough now to become an accepted adjunct, a serious artist absorbed in translating onto canvas all he could of the world's beauty and the time left to him. Everyone thought of him as old, unconsciously responsive to his lead. This morning, considering, he had decided to wait a few days longer before speaking to Mother, but this casual moment might do better. The corridor was quiet, with feminine voices chanting Latin behind a closed door at his left, and Archer's music demanding to be heard on the upper floor. "'He's teasing someone,' Tolson chuckled to himself, as he changed his course to come up with Mother Theodore. At his greeting she halted, falling into the immediate repose so common to the sisterhood, and so seldom seen outside it. She was busy, as a superior always is, Yet she gave the impression of having all the time in the world for Mr. Tolvotson, so long as he made good use of it. Chatting, they walked to the east door, and it was not until then that Mother was certain the artist had something on his mind. His red-brown eyes met hers and flashed away, returned and ran away again. Mother Theodore was amused. She had one infallible ruse with which to bring people to the point. Goodbye for the moment, Mr. Tolvotson she said, and turned to continue on down the stairs. Oh, mother, one second, please. 
Gravely she came back, and they stood looking out through the open door. Yes, said Tilbertson. Yes, well, mother, I don't believe there is any necessity for mentioning this, but from certain remarks of the boys, er, Archer and Eric, I appreciate the obstacles. He broke off chuckling. I'm stammering like a schoolboy, mother. The educational atmosphere, no doubt. I've had no occasion to produce my ruler yet, sir. Tolfutson's mirth died. Ah, yes, well, but to come to the matter, while I seem to have the health of a Titian and may live like him for most of a century, still I feel that I should not put off until tomorrow what I can produce today. And the fact, mother, is that I would be most proud to leave behind me here at St. Aurelian's a sample of my work, a sort of memorial to the sisters and myself at once. Do I put it badly? You put it very well, sir. If I may anticipate you, since you mentioned certain obstacles, I gather that you will need models for this project. Ah, in a nutshell, yes, mother, beautifully draped, of course, angels and children and such like. Mother Theodore stood for a moment in silence, looking out across the quiet scene. A simple request, as simple as Tolbertson himself. He had taken the harmless pose of being old, perhaps to emphasize his fatherliness, but genuine enough was his love for St. Aurelian's. Although there had been no discussion of his financial status, it was plain to Mother that he never would have accepted her offer if he had been able to do otherwise. Few artists elect of their own free will to teach, and he loves us all, Mother thought, and in his gratitude he would leave behind him here the most personal gift he can make. Tolbertson came nearer, and she could smell the turpentine and paint of his old smock. There is a beautiful wall in the auditorium, Mother, an invitation for a mural. If it would be agreeable to you, that is where I would place my picture. Mother nodded. Years ago, when I was a novice, there was talk of a mural, but an artist pointed out that in this damp climate the paint would peel, and the picture would have to be restored so often that in time there would be none of the original left. He must have planned to paint directly on the plaster, Mother. Now I would not do that. I will paint my picture on canvas. I don't say it would never need restoration, of course. All paint peels in this swamp region, but much less than the other way. Tolbertson talked on, Mother's enthusiasm taking fire from his. It was easy, he saw, to arouse her interest in anything which furthered the cultural and educational cause of St. Aurelian's. He spoke of line and color, even sketched a bit on the pad he held, and when finally he remembered his class and excused himself, the mural had become an accepted undertaking. Mother Theodore turned to go down the stairs, then stopped as if someone had stuck her with a pin. She stepped back to the door. Tolbertson was lumbering off toward the barnyard, where his art class, having an outdoor lesson in sketching, moved slowly around after a cow. Mother, watching the ungainly progress of the artist, smiled a little wryly. The first resolution she had made, when at last it was decided to add art to the college schedule, was that the artist should not be allowed to use the girls as models. Personalities were to play no part, but Tolbertson had skirted that neatly. He couldn't be expected to paint an ambitious mural without models, and certainly the huge barn he had selected as a studio was not conducive to intimate friendships and he was anything but the type 
to inspire hero-worship. I have been too thoroughly imbued with the protective instinct for our southern bells, Mother murmured aloud as she hurried down the stairs. Most of them are hardy little weeds, but I'll be careful. Now, if Sister Emery hasn't given up and left the linen room, Tovoltson, pondering the same phase of his art as Mother Theodore, was well pleased with himself. He could approach any of the girls now without having to give a reason, and therefore his approach to the special one would go unremarked. Very good, he chuckled. Very good. He should do well at St. Aurelian's. In the barnyard, the students picked up their three-legged stools, followed the cow until she stopped to graze again, and all sat down. Land sakes, what are they learning I couldn't say, said Glory Muckleroy, as she came out of the hen house and met her husband, High, who was tinkering up the lawnmower. Following that there cow all round the pasture, they been, and I bet a skinned monkey there ain't one of em knows a soup bone from a rump roast. They ain't drawing soup bones, honey, High remarked. Now my idea of nothing is that there other young un whacking away at the little old golf ball. Ain't hit it yet as I can make out. Turlium, at the practice tee between Pecan Grove and Pasture, rested her driver on the ground, while Franz Eric patiently repeated his instructions. She never would hit the ball, not with her hands shaking and her knees quivering, as if the very earth itself quaked beneath her. With Crisp and Archer's illogical music drifting over on the west wind, Franz Eric's hands touching hers as he explained the grip on the golf club, and his tone very formal when he called her Miss Pierce. Tolvoltson swinging across the lawn toward them like a Viking setting out for the new world. Trillium suddenly felt surrounded. "'I'm sorry, I don't feel well, Mr. Eric,' she said, and her pallor gave truth to her words. "'Will you excuse me, please?' She started toward the convent, encountered Tolvoltson, and streaked toward the barnyard. The artist quickened his step, realized he could not catch her without making a dash, which would probably be both undignified and unsuccessful, and strolled on. Franz laughed, slamming at the ball. "'You're doing okay, Erickson,' he said aloud. "'She's got to come back, sometime.' And he shouldered his clubs and meandered off to the tennis court without bothering to follow his ball. "'Get away, get away!' That was Trillium's nightmare urge." But it was almost like running in a dream when you never quite escape and yet never are caught. In her vegetable garden, Glory Muckleroy leaned on her hoe. It was late to be working in a garden, but Glory never could get enough of it. Slowing to a walk in order not to excite comment, Trillian waved to Glory and went on toward the cloister. The woman couldn't help her, Trillian thought, because she never had known real trouble only the fussy trouble of raising five children on nothing. And now that she had come into good days, the old times were the soil out of which the new were growing. No help there, no help from anyone. Up in her room, Trillium shut the door and slid a chair against it under the knob. Crispin Archer had stopped playing in his studio. Someone was practicing scales on a violin. She threw herself flat on the bed. The only sound other than the violin was the short, heavy breathing of a runner, someone who had sped upstairs and through halls until her lungs were bursting. Herself. Trillium jumped up and pushed at the chair again, making certain it was tight under the knob. The door had a lock, one that turned like a bolt on the inside, 
and which could be opened with a key from the outside, an arrangement to assure a small degree of privacy, but not planned for personal safety. Several people had keys, Mother Theodore, Sister Laurent, the refectory sister, Rendy, who did the cleaning. The chair, of course, was secure as any bolt, and no one could get in through the window. It was too high up. Trillium lay down again and closed her eyes. This running away couldn't go on, particularly when she was not running to anything, but only away. The thing to do was to think it out carefully, take her time, face her problem calmly, as she could do it now, with the autumn sunlight falling across her, and the girls all up and about in the building. There was the knowledge, first, that Mr. Archer had heard her name. Franz Eric had called her by it several times this morning, and Tolvoldsen had been determined to meet her, as she crossed the lawn. Each of the three knew her. The safe feeling of anonymity was gone. "'But they—he can't be sure,' she whispered. Still, how many girls named Trillian Pierce would there be in the world? And to focus attention upon that strange name, there was a forthcoming publicity of mustard seed. She could be ill, she thought frantically. She could even eat soap or something to make herself sick, so she wouldn't have to stand up there before him. But that was impossible as well as foolish, for Mother Theodore would call the doctor, and he would say that her illness was brought on by herself, and then they would all begin to ask why, and he would hear about it, and know for certain that she feared him. He might believe, even, that she knew him, could identify him, whenever she found an opportunity, and she would no longer have even the slim safety that was hers now. The spotlight of the play seemed infinitely preferable to such calamity. So there, at least, was one decision made. Under her clinging fingers, the bedspread was crumbled into two damp little volcanoes. She must think about the letter, next. Through the week since All Souls' Day, she had carried it pinned inside her blouse, but that was not secure enough. The paper might tear, the envelope fall, and she would never know where it went. To destroy the letter would be the most final, just as she had always destroyed the others. But not this one. It held too much precious information. If she could hide it where no one would think of looking. And there was the coat. She had to get rid of the coat. For a quarter of an hour, Trillium lay still. When she sat up, the sunshine showed her to be paler than ever. I won't hesitate. I won't think any longer, because this is the only way out, she whispered. Come on, kid, let's get it over. She slid off the bed and opened the closet door. Digging back through the dresses, her hand met soft fur, and she dragged it out. Quickly, as if the touch must not be allowed to soften her resolve, she threw the coat on the bed and snatched her nail scissors. The beautiful matched back lay there, brown and rich. Separating the fur, she plunged the little scissors deep into the skin and worked it until a flap was loosened. Then she caught the torn place and pulled. The skin was soft. When she stopped, there was an arrow-shaped tear, six inches long, in the back of the coat. Well, that much is done, she said aloud. But her voice broke. She couldn't see to find a face tissue, so she wiped her eyes on the sleeve. Then she hung the coat back where it had been in the closet and pulled the chair away from the door. She had accomplished the first step. Now for the next. The lunch bell rang while she was putting on fresh lipstick. She wasn't hungry. 
It would be hash anyway. But she would have to go down. To miss lunch might invite questions, and there was only this afternoon in which to accomplish what she planned. Tomorrow, the day of the play, even the emergency she was about to bring on would not be enough to get her into Marysville. Joining the other girls in the hall, girls a twitter over the approach of dress rehearsal, Trillian was as natural as any of them, because none was quiet herself. Voices were too high, laughter too shrill, tempers a little short. For Trillium there was also the exhilaration of awaiting her opportunity, the old thrill of playing cops and robbers. When the crowd broke up after lunch, she escaped to the dressing room and went straight to the rack where she had hung her costume. There it was, misty white, the blue veil folded neatly over the inside of the hanger. Trillium hesitated then, more than she had over the coat. To destroy was horrible to her. Even as a child she had carefully leafed through the mail-order catalogue, and felt regret when at last her mother said it was worn enough to be cut up for paper dolls. But there was no other way. She had to get into town. The costume drifted in her arms, light with the chiffon artfully caught with a needle in exactly the right places, to make it look free of all sewing. Sister Gaspard was an artist. Hastily selecting a breath which was only a square chiffon, hung diagonally from the shoulder. Trillian caught the middle of it in her teeth and pulled. There was a rending tear, and the square hung with a bulging, ragged hole in the middle. She had wept when she tore her coat, but seeing the ruin of her costume shook her with apprehension. What if she were mistaken, and the material had not been bought at Goldsmith's in Maryville? What if she couldn't replace it as she had planned? For heaven's sake, she groaned, I didn't think of that, but it has to be goldsmith's. Dear Lord, let it be goldsmith's. It was late for such a prayer, like the time Helen set the Declaration of Independence in 1778 on a history exam, and then prayed the Lord to make it that. Trillian pushed apart the other hanging costumes, and thrust her own among them. Now she had to get into town and fast. Sister Raymond, luckily, was puttering around the stage alone. There was nothing to be done, but she was too uneasy for meditation. She was wandering around with a potted fern, knowing she would put it back exactly where it had been, when Trillian burst out of the backstage shadows. Sister Raymond had turned on only one overhead spot, and outside its circle everything was hazy. But there was illumination enough to show the girl's white face and flying hair, and Sister's heart fell clear to her Cuban heels. Trillium, dear, now what? Oh, sister, I tore my costume. You know those wing pieces that sort of float out when we dance? Well, the left one, a big horrible hole. The fern was suddenly too heavy for sister, and Trillium caught it before it fell. I'm just terribly sorry, sister, but I couldn't help it. Both statements were true. Trillium was terribly sorry, and she couldn't help it because this was the only errand she could invent which would surely take her into town. Sister, I still have some money from last month's allowance, and I'll go into town and get a length myself. There's no hem or anything, and I can tack it in place, and poor dear Sister Gaspar will never know the difference. Oh, could you, Trillium? Did they buy it at Goldsmith's, do you think? If they didn't, all was lost, Trillium said truthfully. If I could ask High Muckleroy to run me in... He's going for something else. If you hurry, you'll catch him. You're sure you have the money. Yes, sir. 
Trillium shoved the fern back into Sister Raymond's embrace and made off. Sister Raymond, recovering from the shock, listened to Trillium's quick step departing. Oh, and take Helen with you, dear, she called. She wasn't sure that Trillium heard, but it was Mother's policy never to allow the girls off the grounds alone. In the white glow of the spotlight she paused. Queer that Trillium, of all people, would have torn her costume. If it were Nerissa Braddy, with her red-headed temperament, it would be perfectly understandable. But Trillium! She turned her back to the light, the shadows clown black under her coif, and she stood that way a long time, holding the fern and patting its green-covered plot as if it might be lulled to sleep. Trillium had heard the sister's instruction, but she could easily pretend that she hadn't, if anything came of it. She couldn't take Helen, not when the whole idea was to get the coat away from that determined young lady. In her room she yanked the furrier's box from under her bed. What she had to do took her less than a minute. She ran with the box cover bulging and string flying. She was just in time to catch High Muckleroy. In the side yard by his house he was reviving the engine of the pickup truck which was his care and joy, and only the lower, blue-jeaned half of him was visible. Trillium climbed up into the high-rearing cab. Mother had been ready to junk the truck when High came to the farm, but his outraged protest had dissuaded her. Later, Mother knew that High had the soul of a tinker, and that a shiny new truck would never have had the appeal of this ailing vehicle. He overhauled it weakly, painted it a liverish red, and assured Mother every time he saw her that it was in fine condition. "'Well, Miss Trillium,' he greeted her, folding his long legs into the cab. "'Coming into town with me, eh? Welcome. Ever hear a nicer engine? Purrs like a baby, she does.' Trillium giggled. There were other similes she could suggest, such as an earthquake in full swing. She liked Ty. He was tall and thin and had an air of always being delighted at finding himself in such pleasant surroundings, no matter what they were and to keep up with his position at St. Aurelian's, he had taken to shaving and changing his shirt almost every day. "'Quite a bundle you got there, Miss Trillium,' I shouted. "'I tore my costume,' Trillium shouted back. "'Are you coming to the play tomorrow night?' "'Say, now, I'd admire too, but Glory's gone, and maybe she'll want me to stay with the kids.' "'Oh, take them,' Trillium urged. He hunched his shoulders. His cup of bliss would be running over, whether he sat entranced over mustard seed or hunkered on his back porch, listening to the swamp settle for the night. Marysville still had a baked appearance. The one street which was imposingly named St. Francis Boulevard was only a gasp away from summer indolence. But the furrier's shop was there, and goldsmiths with a display of shovels and thread and kerosene cans and eighty square per call in the window. When High stopped for her at the bank corner, Having completed his errands, Trillium looked as if she had searched for the Holy Grail and found it. Her large box was gone, and in its place she carried a small flat paper sack, with Goldsmith's name across it. "'Get what you want it, Miss Trillium?' he inquired, throwing the truck into gear. "'Everything,' Trillium sighed. It was true. The first step accomplished, the rest would be easy. Tomorrow night the convent grounds will be crowded.' the road a steady stream of autos winding out to the gates, after the play, and almost any one of them would pick up a girl on foot. They wouldn't ask questions. She would be only another playgoer homeward bound. She would wear her brown wool and the dark red blanket coat, 
both inconspicuous in the dark, so when questions would be asked later, the motorist who gave her the ride would be hard put to remember what she looked like, and could only tell that he had given her a lift into Marysville. She had money enough, in spite of the expense of the chiffon. By the time anyone was actually worried, she would be in New Orleans. It was the only course to take, now that Jim knew her. Ahead, casually crossing the parking lot, was Tolbotson. At the moment, Trillian caught sight of him. He observed the truck, and stopped, obviously intending to waylay his passenger, when she alighted at the east door. Trillian grasped Hy's arm. Listen, Hy, stop here. Right here. I'll run in the main entrance. Stop! She jerked his arm, and Hy, mystified, but chalking her excitement up to the queer notions of women in general, stepped on the brake. Leaning across her, he pushed open the door and Trillium jumped out. When Hyde chugged through the parking area and onto the barnyard, he waved at Tolbotson, who was lingering on the steps at the east entrance. Nose a little out of joint, Hyde considered, but what was he after, an old stiff like him? He shrugged and began to whistle. End of chapter 5